Thank you for joining us for the PEDCAC Podcast, a weekly information security show featuring some all-around good people. It is week 37 of 2021. I'm Chris Louie, and with me I have my co-host Brian Deach. Happy birthday to your wife, Corinne, by the way. Right on, man. I'll let her know that you said happy birthday and a little husband pro tip for everyone out there. If your wife ever makes you mad, just send her to Home Depot for something that doesn't exist and then not answer the phone. That's something like elbow grease or blinker fluid? A little bit of both, yes, sir. And Glenn Medina, who recently got a slick haircut. Hey, everyone. Welcome back and thanks for joining us. Happy to be back for podcast number 24. Yes, I did get a haircut. I was getting ready to go do some traveling up in the Pac Northwest to see the team. And uh, it was a good time. Uh, speaking of... Uh, being sent somewhere uh, to go find something that doesn't exist. Uh, when I was a young private, someone sent me out to go get uh, NVG hammers. So it took me <laughs> about a good hour to figure out that there's no such thing as NVG hammers, like night vision goggle. Couldn't put two and two together, guys. <laughs> this week, we have our very first international guest, Brad Lisowski. Brad joins us from our neighbor to the north in Canada, or as like I like to call it, America's Hat. Welcome, Brad. Would you like to introduce yourself? Sure. Thanks, Chris. Hi, everyone. I'm Brad Lisowski. I've been in various IT roles for the past 25 years, from server and network administration to security roles, and then transitioned to a pure security focus in the, the past eight years of my career on the sales side. I'm based just outside of the center of the Canadian universe, Toronto, Ontario, Canada. Happy to be on the podcast today. Brad, do you refer to America as uh, Canada's Mexico? <laughs> we just t- tend to call it America. <laughs> do you like the fact that there's no open borders, Brad? <laughs> so when Chris asked me to come on, he said I had to have a, uh, a fact about Canada. I was going to talk about the, the fact that Canada and the U.S. share the, the largest unguarded land border in the world. Mm, did not know that. That is true. So, so there's one fact for you. That is true. Well, it's great to have you on. Combined, we have decades of information security experience and are here not just to educate, but to entertain. We've got four awesome stories for you this week, so sit back, relax, and enjoy the show. Now, Brad, you are from Canada, and what I know about Canada, I learned from South Park. Your $1 coin is called a loony. You end your sentences with A. You guys love hockey. And your head may or may not flap when you talk, although I know that last one's not true because I've met you several times in person and there was no head flapping. As a very first international guest, can you tell us something about Canada that most Americans would be surprised to know? Sure. So I've got a true-false question for the three of you. So true or false, the southernmost point of Canada gets further south than the most northern point of California. What? What do you think? Wait, wait, repeat that again. This. The most, the furthest south point in Canada is further south than the most northern point of California. Seems like a trick question. Yeah, I, I, I would say no, just because of how far north Canada is. But I'll, I'll let the other guys answer. This is a Snapple question, right? It's like the whole thing. Like Reno is west of Los Angeles. <laughs> it turns out it's true. So I'm gonna say it's true. Yeah, I'm. I, I'd almost say no, but I, I don't know. I'm scared to ask her now. Like, I'm going to go fact check this here. So the, the answer is true. So Brian gets it. Um, so in, in Lake Erie, 
there's Middle Island, which is the most southern point of Canada, and it's furthest it's further south than the most northern port, point of California. Uh, Middle Lake, or sorry, Middle Island, lines up roughly with Toledo in Ohio. Wait, 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 hold on. I thought Lake so Erie was on the. South. I thought Lake Erie was on the U.S. side. Doesn't Lake Erie isn't that owned by the U.S.? You just Canadians just rent it, right? <laughs> <laughs> So maybe for additional you know, uh, facts about Canada, we did have just a general conversation about geography. <laughs> <laughs> I thought I thought Canada was by um, by Africa. Am I wrong? It's in that general direction over there. Oh, okay. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> yeah, I think it's the the whole spherical aspect of the Earth that kind of messes things up with like the whole Reno, uh, Los Los Angeles thing and. Yeah, looking looking at a globe, it's it's challenging because I remember if you if you like lay the state of Alaska over the continental U.S., it like stretches from like Texas, North Dakota. Like Alaska is huge, but you wouldn't be able to tell that from from a globe. Yeah, I just know that you know you can't get anywhere unless it's winter time because that's when ice road truckers kick in, right? So that's the that's a good show. It's like oh, you want to get to the northernmost part of Canada? You got to do it in a truck in the winter. It's true. Sometimes there's only roads that are basically frozen lakes in way northern Canada. All right. On to our first topic. We did not get to this topic last week since we had such a spirited discussion about Black Cube. And I'm actually glad that we waited a week because over this last week, we got new and very interesting details about the T-Mobile data exfiltration hack, also commonly known as a, a data breach. What we do know is that the attacker made off with about 50 million user records, including first name, last name, addresses, date of birth, essentially the holy grail for identity thefts. Exactly how it happened is sure to infuriate anyone who knows even a little bit about InfoSec. Now, T-Mobile claims no social security numbers or credit card data got leaked, but just a week ago, or just a week after the data went up for sale on the dark web, the credit card that I used to pay my T-Mobile bill, bill uh, it got compromised and someone had some fun on the Las Vegas Strip at my expense. So yes, the hosts get hacked part four. The attacker is an American citizen living in Turkey named John Bins. John is so confident that he's out of the U.S. jurisdiction that he went on the record with the Wall Street Journal to lay out what happened. John moved to Turkey to live with his mom, so he literally conducted this hack from his mom's basement. Last month, John performed an IP scan of all of T-Mobile's public IP space looking for vulnerabilities, and sure enough, he found an exposed router with, wait until you hear this, and make sure you're firmly planted in your chair so you don't fall out of it. John found a router with an unprotected Telnet port open, so I'm going to say that again. In the year 2021, T-Mobile had a public-facing router with an exposed and unprotected Telnet port. These ports are typically used for things like remote administration, but has been deprecated for decades in favor of SSH and other more secure remote management tools. Once John got into the router, he went upstream and infiltrated T-Mobile's data center in Washington State, and from there spent a month going completely unnoticed and bouncing around over 100 servers in the data center, collecting and exfiltrating personal information on millions of T-Mobile's customers. I should add that none of the data was encrypted at rest, and I feel our listeners are probably facepalming right about now. 
can you say network and server segmentation? T-Mobile didn't have a clue this guy was in there and didn't even know about the data breach until a third-party company who monitors dark web markets notified them that their data was up for sale. Who in their right mind uses Telnet today? OMG. Holy cow. Right? And, and then not only that, but uh, uh, left like unguarded on the internet. Probably, I bet you the password is just admin, admin, Chris. I mean, come on. Anybody want to take bets on that? Yeah, I don't doubt that for a second. <laughs> it wouldn't shock me at all. Yeah, it makes you wonder, like, was this, the, did a router fail? And then some dude was like, like moseying around the closet and he found like an old one. And he's just like, oh, we'll just, we'll swap this out real quick. Like, I mean, no one's used Telnet for decades. Like, like how does this come out of nowhere? Yeah. And why is it just now being seen? You would think that organizations have a checklist or, you know, just things to check before they put something into service. So that's, yeah, shocking. Yeah, if there was just a way I could limit my attack surface, Brad, it'd be awesome, wouldn't it? <laughs> if only, right? Yeah. If only. Yeah. Uh, and then, not only that, but got, got scanned. <laughs> just, well, I guess everybody gets scanned every day, but the fact that they got scanned and then got owned. And, but, and not only that, but had no clue that the guy came in that way. I mean, wow. That's a... Uh, It'd be interesting to see if that whole security organization sticks around. And for the listeners, yeah. really, like all you need really to execute a plan like this is Nmap and, and some time on your hands to, to find it out. Just imagine seeing, wasn't Telnet like port 23, if I'm not mistaken? 21. 21 and a response back on 22. Right? I thought that so was FTP. That, that tells you how uh, long ago Telnet was useful. Yeah, yeah. That the fact that four of us don't remember... <laughs> what the port it was yeah <laughs> well i just hope he got rich like maybe we can go visit him or something in turkey well according so to chris was... he had a really good night in vegas so <laughs> he sold it <laughs> no, i think he sold that information somebody somebody took that and played with it in vegas well what's 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 credit card is worth these days chris is it like 10 bucks 20 bucks it's actually funny it, it depends so it depends on the the issuer, it depends on the credit limits. There's there's a lot of dependencies, but it, it could be anywhere from you know thirty cents a piece to like an like an Amex Platinum or an Amex Centurion. Those could be worth like ten bucks a piece. Wow. And yeah, they're worth more if you have like the billing zip code and all that information. Because like if I want to buy something online, like they, they check the billing zip code and you have to have that information mm. versus just swiping this at a gas station terminal. So there was a point in time in one of my previous gigs where we were using, I think, like Qualys to do internal and external scans of the network. And I remember finding like 23 big IP management addresses that were exposed to the Internet and remembering that it took months to get resolved. So I wonder if there was someone like someone inside T-Mobile that was just like, you know, like waving their arms up and down with the pieces of paper like, I told you guys so. Like, no one listens to me. And by the way, <laughs> Telnet is port 23. How dare you guys? Yeah. So I'll, I'll admit to you guys one thing. Early on in my career, many, 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 many years ago, right? Just just like I was looking for NVG hammers. Um, I was a young administrator testing out a proxy, and I just happened to leave it on the internet um, and not secured. 
And little behold that I get a, it's in my lab and little, little did I know that, you know, like I think less than 24 hours later, I get an email from, from my internet services provider saying, Hey, you're something's going on on your network and you should check it out. And yep, lo and behold, I left the uh, proxy services available and everyone and anyone and everyone was using my proxy. So oops dang yeah, rook oops good job yeah well didn't do that again though after that that was a great lesson learned there so so we talk real quick about the failure here because like if you think about it right telnet's open that's the that's the way in and you got someone like shifting around the the, the network and all that good stuff but I, i'm willing to bet that homeboy did not use telnet to do all the exfil i don't think he's gonna sit there and cat files all ding you know all day long he was probably going out some other way and like how on earth do you miss that much customer data without well, inspection. Then, and then add add the east-west like Chris was talking about, right? The fact that he went from, I guess, probably server to server, database to database. And, you know, what, what credentials was he using to access those things that seemed to be open? Was it admin, admin as well as he was going across? So, yeah. I mean, considering he got it all done in a month, that's pretty, that's pretty phenomenal. Yeah, it was definitely a, a cascading set of failures that allowed this to happen. The telnet port was just the entry in, and then he probably set up some kind of reverse shell or some type of VPN within the organization. But yeah, 50 million records in a month. Like he didn't have to salami slice this out and exfil, you know, one record a minute or something. He just like mass exfilled this and just absolutely no IPS or IDS. Yeah. Uh, the, the guys had, these guys had no idea this guy was in their network. Would have been cool if he. Uh, it would have been cool if he like patched the Telnet server services and then just created his own backdoor with SSH, and so nobody would know, right? Because everything was encrypted at that point. <laughs> Do you guys think uh, you, any anyone willing to bet that it was either the exfil was either over DNS or like HTTPS or some other por- uh, protocol? What do you guys think? You know, at this point, it wouldn't surprise me that this guy just uploaded it to OneDrive. Like the, <laughs> the security inside T-Mobile was so terrible, that, and he even described it. Like he said, "Yeah, the security was atrocious. Like I, I did whatever I wanted in there, and there was no one that could stop me. No alarms, no red flags, no one noticing that it was a bunch of data leaving their network. There was large someone up- querying a database, fifty million records exfilled. Yeah, it's like where's like the database monitoring, the rate limit. Yeah, it's yeah, no one watch, no watching for brute force. Uh, yeah, what do you want to bet if they have an, an MSP or MSSP that they'll be looking? There, there will be an RFP out pretty soon. <laughs> <laughs> but yeah, like you said, if you put it onto OneDrive or something like that, then that's just lost in the noise, right? Mm-hmm. If that's what they use, and you know they just see. X many terabytes a day of, of OneDrive traffic. It's just, it's so noisy. They wouldn't even know. Yeah, so I got to block that personal OneDrive all day long. Yep. All right. Moving on from data breaches to DDoS attacks. We have not really talked about DDoS attacks or distributed denial of service attacks on the podcast because they were mostly what I consider a problem of the past. Now, there's still DDoS attacks which occur every day, but it's not a scourge on the cyber world like ransomware is today. DDoS attacks used to be a huge problem maybe four or five years ago when the likes of DDoS botnets like Mirai, Satori, and Reaper were wreaking havoc for hire. Massive botnets compromising 
IoT devices would point their IP traffic to a target and basically knock it offline. Mirai was so successful and its authors released the source code online, so there were countless copycats. So if you didn't want to take a test at school today, well, DDoS them offline. Someone killed you in Call of Duty and called you a nasty name, get their IP address and DDoS their internet, internet connection into oblivion. Part of the solution to the DDoS problem that we had was the successful prosecution of people who ran these DDoS services. They would offer up things like, quote, stress test services, meaning the service was only supposed to be used on your own servers to test your capabilities. Yeah, right. <laughs> what a loser. This, the mistake there was DDoS is not as profitable as ransomware, so the attacker's host country was not willing to provide them any safe harbor. Mirai's attack code and other copycats attempt to infect IoT devices with weak security by using hard-coded or weak credentials, such as admin-admin. The newly compromised device then looks for more devices to infect until there's an army of these compromised devices out there. In 2016, you may remember a massive IoT botnet launched a DDoS attack against the DNS provider DynDNS and took down most of the internet, including Twitter, Facebook, Amazon, Netflix, and Okta. This month, website security company Cloudflare disclosed that they successfully mitigated a DDoS attack, which was sending 17.2 million requests per second, which is three times larger than the largest previously known DDoS attack. To Cloudflare's credit, their greatest success was that we did not hear about it more in the news. So just like those of us in the security research space, our failures are known, our successes are not. Did they elaborate? Like, was it like a NTP reflection attack or some type of amplification attack? HTTP. Yeah, no doubt it was some. It was some type of amplification attack that seems to be all the rage today. Seventeen point two million requests per second doesn't seem like a lot, to be honest yeah. with you. Is it the whole idea that that like, the other way you can mitigate that is just by building your networks bigger that can handle twenty million requests per second and it, like doesn't skip a beat? Right. Well, or it depends. Million. So if it was like a sin flood, right, you'd have to, the only way to really mitigate that outside of just buying like crazy amount of hardware to do like sin cookies, which would flesh out the, the connection table, right? That'd be a, an appropriate way to do it. I remember <clears throat> working at a university where they had 20 gig firewalls and they got hit with a three, three gig attack um, a sin flood and it took out it was like the ASAs and then it took out the Palo Altos then it took out the Citrix low bouncers and, and, and all, like it just was like this whole like cascading effect and you look at that you're like well when we had 20 gig capacity how did 3 gigs take us down it was all about the connections just yeah. overwhelming that and so then I ended up working out with a, a company out of Albuquerque called Risk Sense and these guys they were they were good man but they they used like Ixia breaking point to generate all different kinds of attacks. And they actually did it over the internet um, when we were trying to put the bandaid on the solution. That's for sure. Yeah. And I guess the second part of that discussion is about the IOTs, right? Stinking stupid treadmill sitting in my house, communicating out to the internet. <laughs> Don't know what the hell it <laughs> says. Knocking people offline. Knocking people offline. Probably taking up all my bandwidth. So, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> So like, are you guys like with me, like you just lock down IOT, like I have a ring doorbell. So I just open up the ports and the destinations for ring, 
same thing with some cameras, the same thing with like Apple TV, or do you guys just kind of like IoT send it out to the world? I don't even care. Maybe rate limit. Yeah, if you would have asked me maybe five years ago if I did that, I would be like, yeah. Now it's like I don't care. Like just do whatever <laughs> you need to do. Like I, I've thought about creating their own their own network, um, but that sounds like a lot of work to me. So I'm just too lazy right now. <laughs> England. I think a risk-based approach to that. Uh, like I have a Synology NAS. I think I've talked about it on the show. Um, and I have a higher level of trust in Synology than I do, say, this Chinese webcam maker. So for this Chinese webcam that I have on my network, I've completely firewalled it off and it can only communicate with the least privileged level. And even then, it yeah, I take a pause to, uh, about what traffic that sends. I have to keep a close eye on, on that. Um, I've actually heard an interesting approach to IoT. It's called the uh, a two-router mode, where you have your primary router first, and that's where all your computers and your NASs connect to. And then upstream to that is your IoT router, so all your devices connect to that. So your primary router can go upstream through the IoT router to your internet, but your IoT router cannot go backwards and hit your your uh, production router. So there's there's like the two-router trick that you can do to that that for people that, that want to be super secure. Is it any better than just doing VLAN segmentation? It's easier, I'll tell you that. Okay. Yeah, I was just saying, I don't have a special network or anything for my IoT stuff, but I still monitor it. Uh, I've only got one real offender, which is the controller for the lawn sprinkler, which seems to call out about 8,000 times a day uh, back to some IP address in, in Asia somewhere. <laughs> but having said that, that, that got stopped right quick my guest network it's always the android phone that lands on here always just tons of red flags all the time yeah for the longest time i used to do guest networks for my kids and their friends used to give everyone like hey if you want to use our network get install the certificate and they'd be like well what is for i said it's just it's a pass to get on the internet and you know you (laughs) said I just got you do tired. SSL inspection. Yeah, I do SSL inspection on them. I just got too tired of just like, oh, you know what? Just, you guys go do whatever you need to do. I, I need to go to work. <laughs> I got stuff to do. So Glenn, I need to read up about the next. Yeah, I need to read about the next next podcast because if I don't want to sound dumb. So, <laughs> so I, I just want to put so you earlier, Brian, you made a comment. 17.2 million requests per second doesn't sound like a lot. Um, in Cloudflare's blog, they actually said, a hundred percent of Cloudflare's legitimate traffic is about eighty million requests per second. So this one single attack took up over a quarter of its total legitimate internet capacity. So that's to put some context around that number. That's a that's lot. That's pretty big. Yeah, <laughs> for one yeah, that's for one service. Yeah, I it'd be wondering to see how much how how many devices was causing caused the eighteen million requests though, right? Yeah, yeah, definitely. Like, like we, like we said, I, I thought DDoS attacks were, or major ones at least, were, were a thing in the past. But it, it sounds like there's still an army out there, and it's probably for sale to the highest bidder. Unless you, you, it's it's hard to secure IoT because these devices are cheap. Yeah. Unless you bake it into the silicon, it's it's actually really hard to secure IoT. Yeah. Where you, what you can do is, is secure the network though. So these IoT devices can only phone out to you know, legitimate servers and they cannot phone out to these command and control servers. They can't get instructions on where to hit next, but 
Yeah, it's uh, IoT is going to be a, a problem for a, a really long time. Yeah. Where, where's the money in this, though, guys? I mean, if you think about it, it's like, okay, great, you knock out a service for 24 hours while they figure this thing out, they patch it, whatever. Where, where's the money? Because there's no, there's no data loss. It's just a loss of service, right? A degraded service. So I'm just trying to figure out where, why would someone be incented to do this? Could be hacktivism. Like if you want to knock off a government's website, like Estonia, I think there were attackers that took down the government of Estonia's website. That's sort of hacktivism. The other one is DDoS extortion. You know, pay us a bunch of money or we're going to knock you offline. So there's, there's that angle to it too. Or I was bored. <laughs> hey, this <laughs> thing is likely, yeah. not to like plug. There's also repute. Go ahead. Say there, there's also reputation, right? If you, if some big site gets knocked down again, you know, it'll probably make the news and that site will keep losing that reputation or that company will start keep losing that reputation that they're not reliable, etc. So you never know. It could be a, a shadow competitor that's trying to knock them off uh, offline like that. All right, good point. So just to give you guys some perspective and not to plug F5 a whole lot, but I used to work there, right? And, and I used to do the whole DDoS stuff and on-prem and whatnot. And they have these chassis where you can plug in like these blades. And I think the biggest one was, they actually called it like a Raptor. You can actually have like eight blades, but a single blade could move 5 million layer seven requests per second. And if I can load up a single like enclosure with four of those blades, that's 20 million. So when I'm talking like, it doesn't seem like a whole lot, 17.4. And then if you look at the grand scheme of things, like you could like, uh, for lack of better words, you can almost like service chain this entire setup and do up to 32 devices that can hold four of these blades each. Like it just like, it's incredible to me that Cloudflare what was is the like, price yeah. tag on that. What's the price tag on that each? Uh, for a, probably an HA pair, probably somewhere in the one point five to two million dollars oh, okay. after discounts and stuff. I mean, it wasn't wasn't yeah. too bad. Okay. The reality is, you just want to do BGP signaling, right? You, the reality, like you could absorb it online, but the, I mean, you're spending a lot of money, or you buy an appropriate size firewall, whatever you guys need, and when detection kicks off, then right, you signal up to your ISP, who could go up to Cloudflare, or whoever absorb the attack. And you yeah. just get charged for that, and it's probably pennies on the dollar. Yeah. yeah. Before the last mile, for sure. Yep. Push it out as far as possible. I had a friend uh, that worked for, he still works there for Phoenix Snap. His name's Danny Fuentes, and we talked a lot about DDoS. And he's like, his whole uh, method to fixing that was it just like a, a black holing routes. So if they thought it was bad, it was black hole it upstream with, with CenturyLink or whoever, and didn't even fill it. It was incredible. Oh, nice. Oh, cat and mouse game. All right, on to our next topic. So I've, I've done it all, and I've seen it all, so it takes a lot for a malware crew to impress me, but I have to say, this next social engineering technique we're about to talk about, uh, it's very clever, but also very simple. As browsers become their own operating systems, they've had to get smarter and safer to protect users against themselves. For example, if you go to a suspected phishing site, web browsers like Firefox and Chrome will flash a giant, a giant red screen that says, danger, danger, do not go here. Only click continue if you're an idiot. Now, I'm also a security researcher, so when I try to knowingly download a piece of malware for analysis, the browsers, the typical browsers, make it extremely difficult to do so. They will automatically delete the file. They'll throw all kinds of warnings, like, are you sure you want to download it? 
after you download this is, are you sure you want to keep this file? And generally, generally they give me a hard time when I try to intentionally download malware. So you have to actively jump through hoops to save and execute this malicious file. Well, one malware crew found a way to get users to unknowingly bypass all those browser protections. When an attacker lures a user into visiting a web page to watch a video and insert your own lure here, such as, you know, hidden video of some celebrity or something the government doesn't want you to know about, just get that user to click that link to view the video, the video will start to play. And in the background, a malicious file is being downloaded onto the user's computer, but the browser will throw a warning asking if the user wants to keep or discard the malicious file. The video will then pause and show a captcha, like a fake captcha, asking the user to prove that they are human by typing a series of keystrokes. This seems innocent enough, as we've all had to do these prove you are not a robot checks countless times every day. However, the series of keystrokes the CAPTCHA instructs the user will actually tell the browser to keep and execute the downloaded file. So very clever. The video will continue to play, the malicious file is executed, and you potentially compromise that machine now. Keyboard shortcuts are incredibly powerful, and if you can trick a user into typing in the correct sequence, you can actually do a lot of damage. This takes me back to my early online gaming days where people in Counter-Strike would ask, how do you do something? How do you double jump? How do you get unlimited money in the game? And we'd all try to troll them and say, hey, just hit Alt-F4 and, and that'll, that'll take care of it, and then immediately see them leave the game. Yeah, I remember trolling people with Alt-F4 back in my AOL days, having a good old time with that. that, that that's pretty popular. I see here in your notes, you have control L and Apple L. I use that in Chrome to go up to the, to the URL. So I don't, I don't have to click up there to type in to the website when I do what, what's, what's this in reference to Chris? That is exactly what that is. That's something that I learned probably in the past month or so. I never knew about this, but I'm constantly you know, highlighting my URL and copying it. But if, if you hit control L or Apple L on your keyboard, it automatically goes to your address bar and, and highlights it. So that's just an example of a keyboard shortcut that that can be be used gotta love shortcuts man that's awesome with you though chris i'm really tempted not to do it because you never know what's going to happen being security <laughs> guy can we trust you or not we don't know <laughs> there's only one way to find out for the record if you guys want to like fish me with a video just like send me a video that says you know like golden retriever puppy meets human for first time and i'll be like oh what okay i can't click on this fast enough i love puppies <laughs> some reason yeah, I, would, I think you're going to start getting emails on that or getting subscriptions <laughs> to that to your to your feed here uh, brian so i think my my other favorite uh shortcut in pretty much any browser is the i'm, I'm on mac right so it's gonna be apple shift t i'm always closing out the wrong tab and that the shift t will restore the last tab that i had closed on accident what about you no guys? way apple yeah. shift t yeah or okay. control shift t on windows control shift t okay Nice. Race cars are playing. We yeah, we know what Glenn was doing. <laughs> <laughs> that was just videos of of animals that I'm looking at for my research. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but man, social engineering is getting clever. They're bypassing browser controls. So I mean, I think that's. That lends itself to the whole defense in depth that you can't rely on users to do the right thing. You can't rely on your browser to do the right thing. You've got to add that extra layer of protection for, in this example, it'd be some type of phishing protection, malware protection, 
uh, from for the users to just again protect them against themselves. All the security awareness training, you know, don't click on that link. You click on that link, it seems like an innocent video. Do this captcha, which is a series of keystrokes that executes a malicious payload. But you, you've got to have that that defense in depth there. I think ultimately users want to do the right thing, but the attackers are getting so sophisticated that it just it looks so real that they just don't know when the right thing when to what the right thing is anymore. Yeah, absolutely. So you guys know in Chrome, like if you go to like your your router and it's on a secure port, it will come up and it gives you the browser warning, correct? Mm-hmm. Yeah, in the, Chrome, this is not a secure site. Yeah. Yep. So in Chrome, assuming that you don't click on anything or do anything differently, and I haven't tested this out in a while, and it, they change it every once in a while, if you would type in this is unsafe without a space, it would just automatically load the page for you. It was like a little browser shortcut to bypass did, that whole, like having to click on it and say, yes, I know this, this is unsafe. Where, where would you write that at the URL at the top or? No, just anywhere. Like you just go, you, you know, 10, you know, one, 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 and you hit enter and you get that warning. You would just type in, this is unsafe. And then boom, it would just load the page for you. Seems a lot longer than just clicking. Please proceed. I know it's unsafe. <laughs> <laughs> well, it, it first started off with bad idea was the first one. And then they changed it to this is unsafe. Yeah, so that's the next social engineering trick. Get someone to type it, type that in. Bypass the security. Yep. All right, for our last story, and it'll be a rotating topic every week, I thought it'd be nice to get back to our roots of, of being geeking out on technology. This week, Brian is going to talk to us about a USB rubber ducky. This is a device that pen testers or hackers use to compromise computers and perform all kinds of tomfoolery. Yeah, so the uh, the USB rubber ducky, it kind of, I looked at it the first time on Hack 5, I was like, whatever, like, I don't own, like, a Windows computer, like, this is complete trash to me, and then I started looking into it, I was like, well, you know, there's all kinds of safety measures uh, for a USB drive being plugged in your computer, like, how, how does this thing actually work? And uh, come to find out, when you plug it in, a USB drive it usually comes like if it's if it's Windows, we'll say it's a mass storage device and that's it, and it's kind of isolated. But this attacker created something kind of cool. When you plug it in, the computer looks at it and says, "Oh, this is a keyboard." So it, it interfaces with the HID, which basically is the computer says, "Oh, it's a keyboard. There must be a human there. Therefore, I am going to trust the device or trust anything that's going on with it." So you plug it in. And as soon as you do it, and, and it does like something crazy, like a thousand keystrokes per minute, and it could be wild. Like the first thing you would do is, all right, I'm going to open up the security control panel. I'm going to disable like the Windows firewall and Windows Defender, and I'm going to reach out to this URL. I'm going to download some malware. I mean, like whatever you wanted to do, it could be done. And so if you actually, uh, you know, unplug it and crack it open, there's a little SD drive. In there, you take that and you can actually put in a ton of different um, Python scripts or shell scripts in there that will emulate these keystrokes. So it's kind of cool. It works cross platform. You can work on Mac, you can work on Windows, probably Linux. I didn't, I didn't look that far, but I thought that was kind of interesting. And to, to watch it in action as you plug it in and like this, all of a sudden it's like, you know, uh, the dude from uh swordfish is on the computer just you know typing a thousand words per minute just going crazy disabling stuff and you don't have to have any elevated permissions it's such a clever way of uh you know combating security pretending to be human as a keyboard when you plug it in have you guys 
Did anyone here actually own this? Have you tried this before? I don't actually own one, but I, I'm very familiar with it. And it is very clever because like endpoint security solutions that try to block data transfers, like they'll block mass storage devices, they'll block, say, a webcam, but they typically don't block keyboards. So if this thing enumerates itself as a keyboard, then that might be allowed through typically. And you can imagine having that level of control is like physically being in front of that keyboard and, and typing in all these these keystrokes. So yeah, it is a diabolical tool. Uh, I can see it being very useful for pen testing, but also ripe for abuse. Yeah, I've, I've got a lot of gov a lot of government customers that just disable the USB port. Period. Like no access. I don't care if you're a keyboard or not. So. Yeah, that's true. You just completely turn it off and say, you want an external mouse? Forget about it. You're stuck with this trackpad. So yeah, that, that's that's the other way to, to protect against yeah. this. Would that work on a desktop? I mean, you have to plug it in somewhere, right? You just disable all USB ports? I don't know. That's a good question. So like, the way who's got a I desktop use... these days? <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Sorry, I think Chris. my grandma does. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> so I've actually heard through un unofficial channels that for very high security environments, uh, they'll actually epoxy the USB port shut. So they're not, they're not even relying on, on software security. They're, they're relying on the hardware level security. And then if you have a keyboard or a mouse, they'll, they'll epoxy it to the, the USB port. So you can't, you know, if, if you yank this thing out, it'll physically destroy the device. That is not practical for being able to swap these things yeah. out. But I mean, that's, that's the price you pay for security. Yeah. I've seen that too. Yeah. Just go back even on that. It's like I've been to a secure government site where they wouldn't allow me to bring my ThinkPad into the building because they said the parts were made in China. So that was interesting. It's what like, okay, isn't I'll made in China? Like yeah, <laughs> as opposed to this Mac that isn't made in China. Oh, wait, it's made in China. <laughs> hey, Glenn, we're going to need you to take your shirt off. <laughs> Security protocol. <laughs> yeah. I'm not wired. No, your shirt's made in China, bro. <laughs> yeah. You mean that $15 keyboard that you uh, epoxied into the computer? Yeah. Yeah, it's made in China, too. Yeah. I've had companies put, like, stickers over my camera and USB ports and whatever if I was a visitor and that kind of thing. But epoxying seems a bit uh, heavy-handed. But talk about, like, a kind of a clever distribution model. I mean, it's not free. I think the... I forget, they're probably less than a hundred bucks, right? But if you were really wanting to get creative, just drop off a couple at Starbucks and hope some, you know, millennial idiot takes it and plugs it in and you just have a filled day. I mean, think about it. Like if you did that, you could literally probably go into Firefox or Chrome, the store, and export all the usernames and passwords and just dump it off at some third-party site and then just go have fun. Like there's so much there. I'll do one better than that. How about, like I said, I dropped my kid off and they're having all these like freebies as they walk through campus. If I just stand up a tent and go, hey, look, you get a free USB. Come talk to me for a minute. And here's a USB stick. Go on. You can use this for class. And then now you're just stealing their stuff, right? You're as like, they, great. Now I have class. student debt. <laughs> you got to target a better audience, bro. <laughs> No, you got to think yeah, like think creatively. Where would you actually do this, and where would you like the, the most bang for your buck? Like Harvard. not like the I would do it at Harvard. <laughs> in Harvard, outside of, outside a of T-Mobile office. <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> no, they just they just leave Telnet open, so that that's easy. Yeah, just, just scan their network. Save your hundred bucks. Yeah. It's no big deal. Yeah, it had to be some kind of watering hole attack that you have to select your target, 
see where they may hang out and then find some way to to lure them lure them in it, it it'd be a more targeted attack i would think not this isn't something you want to just broadly throw out there to like yeah. you know, all the university students. although it, it would work but i don't know how cost effective how about a tesla this... tesla battery factory <laughs> that's from the last story <laughs> and don't plug it into my computer go plug it into your neighbor's computer <laughs> right well, when you talk about like widespread and like this, like kind of ease of use, right? Like I think the the easiest one I had ever done, just for giggles, right? Was sub seven. You would you, like it has like its like own little config. You build out your executable, and basically that's where you, you say, "Hey, this is how you can like log into it: username and password, along with your ICQ number, right?" And so then the next logical step is now that I have this piece of malware. Like, how do I distribute it? So back in the day, like you know, two thousand two, it was just like, "Well, I'm just gonna go out and LimeWire or Kazaa." Right. Rename this executable to like the MSN password stealer. Uh, just dropped it there, shared it all weekend, came back uh, to, to work on a Monday and like had like 32 ICQ messages uh, of like, hey, I'm here and wait, you know, here and waiting. And then you had complete remote access into something. I mean, it's like it's just insane, like how clever people can be. Yeah, definitely. Well, we continue to get great comments about our dad joke of the week. Dad joke of the week. This week, our guest Brad is up. So I'm going to keep with the Canadian theme and ask, why are Canadian students so smart? Why? They get they get lots of A's. Hey, there you go. <laughs> hey. Hey. But, but do they cool spell friend. it with A's or do they spell it with E's? Nice one, Brad. <laughs> All right, to wrap things up, the T-Mobile hack is much worse than we thought, and their security is atrocious. Cloudflare stopped the largest DDoS attack in history, and almost no one knows except for you, the listeners. Hackers continue to find clever ways to social engineer their victims. And a rubber ducky is more than just a bathtub toy. That's all we have for this week. We hope you enjoyed this week's episode. You can find us all on LinkedIn. Links will be in the description. Follow us on Instagram at Pebcac Podcast. You can help us grow the podcast by telling someone else about it, and your chances of going to President's Club just went up by 20% by listening to our podcast. We, should, we appreciate you all spreading the word to help grow the show. The best way to find us is to search for the Pebcac Podcast on your favorite podcast listening app, now available on Amazon and Audible. For my co-host Brian Deach and Glenn Medina, and our guest Brad Lisowski, I'm Chris Louie. Thanks for listening. We'll see you all next week. And as always, have a nice day. Have a good one, everyone. Thanks, Brad. Thanks, guys. Thanks for having me. Have a nice day.